TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Tensions have dialed back between India and Pakistan following February's clash prompted by a terror attack on Indian paramilitaries in Indian-controlled Kashmir resulting in Indian airstrikes on Pakistani positions and the downing of an Indian fighter jet. The easing of tensions is crucial, given that both countries have nuclear weapons in their arsenals. Joining the crisis next door to talk about the tense relationship is retired Ambassador Hussein Haqqani, Hudson Institute Senior Fellow and Director for South and Central Asia. He served as Pakistan's ambassador to the U.S. from 2008 to 2011 and was an advisor to four Pakistani prime ministers, as well as serving as Pakistan's ambassador to Sri Lanka in 1992 and 93. Ambassador Haqqani, thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door. It's a pleasure being here, Jason. When Pakistan handed the captured Indian F-16 pilot back to Indian authorities, the standoff quickly de-escalated and the world let loose a collective sigh of relief. After all, not only do the two countries feature two of the biggest militaries in the world, but they each have somewhere north of 100 nuclear-tipped warheads. Ambassador Haqqani, how close do you think India and Pakistan were to their first all-out war in nearly 50 years? I don't think they were particularly close to an all-out war. I think that over the last few years, it's kind of become a ritual between India and Pakistan. Uh, Whenever they uh, have a confrontation situation, uh, the Pakistanis in particular, being the relatively weaker side in a conventional context, uh, always raise the specter of nuclear confrontation. It has happened since 1999. This time, what was different was that the United States and other major powers decided not to make a public noise about it, to give the message to the Pakistanis and Indians that you have to solve this yourself. Because uh, the crisis started with a terrorist strike in uh, Jammu and Kashmir, which is a disputed area between Pakistan and India. Uh, India wants that matter to be considered as resolved. Pakistan wants to draw international attention to it. So so each of the India-Pakistan confrontations of the last two decades since both countries tested their nuclear weapons has followed a certain pattern. Uh, There is a terrorist strike in India. India threatens retaliation. Pakistan says, well, if you retaliate, we will retaliate to your retaliation. And after all of that, there will be nuclear war. And the rest of the world goes into panic mode. This time, the rest of the world said, hmm, maybe we are not going into panic mode. We do know that both of you have nuclear weapons, but then both of you should also show the responsibility that comes with the possession of nuclear weapons. Do you think that New Delhi and Islamabad were caught off guard by the world taking that kind of hands-off approach? I think New Delhi had it worked out because they have been working on it for many years. Look, Pakistan and India have a huge power differential. Uh, The only area in which they are equal right now is nuclear weapons capability. Other than that, the size of the economy, India is much larger. India's population is six times larger than Pakistan. Uh, 
India's uh, uh, international relations are with much larger number of countries around the world. Um, and uh, basically, since the 1990s, the gap has been increasing. Uh, so India's uh, uh, tendency has been to try and give the message to the world, we are responsible, we can handle anything in our region. In fact, we are ready for global leadership. We are ready for pay playing a role in the Indo-Pacific. Pakistan wants to continue to pressure India about Kashmir uh, and says, no, you can't ignore this dispute between us. And therefore, Pakistan has been uh, accused by almost every country in the world of harboring terrorists. And now terrorism and nuclear weapons don't normally go together. The Soviet Union never uh, uh, tried to engage in terrorist attacks in the U.S., understanding that this kind of subconventional activity can lead to conventional confrontation and then to escalation to a nuclear stage. Pakistan's strategy has been different. Pakistan says having a subconventional capability basically means we can do pinpricks with India, but India cannot retaliate because it will have to fear nuclear war. This time, that changed. India was able to retaliate, and although Pakistan retaliated the Indian retaliation, uh, and in that whole process, a MiG-21 pilot of India was shot down, uh, possibly by a F-16, which is a superior aircraft American-made uh, by the Pakistani side. But very frankly, we've seen this movie before. It happened in 1991. Only difference at that time the American president was on the phone with the Indians and the Pakistanis uh, uh, almost every day. Uh, the Pakistani prime minister was invited to Washington, D.C. on July 4th, even though it was Independence Day holiday, to be able to give him a face saver. Everybody's got tired of that now. And so Pakistan is the one that was caught by surprise because their playbook just didn't play out this time. I want to get to the terrorist component, but uh, you did mention the USSR. And of course, the U.S. and USSR avoided global annihilation through the theory of mad, mutually assured destruction. Do Delhi and Islamabad believe in that concept? I think uh, theoretically, yes. But I think that uh, the whole concept of uh, mad was on, uh, based on the premise that uh, there would be both all countries would maintain the status quo. So, for example, the United States never tried to go and say, you know what, we are going to attack Poland or Hungary or somewhere like that, even though they fall within the Soviet uh, orbit uh, and change the status quo. Uh, whatever was the status quo in 1945 at the end of the Second World War, both superpowers agreed to preserve it. There's a huge problem in the subcontinent. India is a status quo power. It wants everything to remain as it is. Pakistan can control the part of Kashmir it has. India can control the part of Kashmir it has. Pakistan's worldview is different. Pakistan says that Kashmir is very important to us. Uh, there are human rights violations taking place there. It has a predominantly Muslim majority. It should be given a chance to come and join Pakistan. The entire nuclear deterrence theory that we are familiar with, going back to the Soviet Union and the United States, the whole notion of mutually assured destruction also presupposes that to avoid mutual assured destruction, let us maintain what is, keep the status quo. The fact that one of the two parties in the subcontinent does not want the status quo to be preserved makes mutually assured destruction uh, less practically applicable 
even though both sides are fully aware. And General Musharraf, who was Pakistan's military ruler until recently, said only last week that uh, neither India nor Pakistan can afford a nuclear exchange because it would be the end of uh, uh, the two countries as we know it. So I think that that knowledge is very much there which is why this time de-escalation took place even without the uh, big pomp and show of international visitors traveling back and forth and presidents calling prime ministers, etc. Because both sides do know that when the chips are down, nuclear war is an impossibility and the price that each country will have to pay for it is just too high. The problem is <clears throat> that Pakistan does not use nuclear weapons of in the conventional military sense only. It also uses them uh, to gain international attention, a bit like North Korea does. I mean, North Korea every now and then sends about a missile, not because that missile is going to hit anything, but because that's the way to get attention. And President Trump, whatever our criticisms of him in other ways, is trying a very different approach. Some would argue it's a very risky approach, but that is to say, hey, nobody can bluff uh, us about uh, since we have nuclear weapons, therefore, you have to give attention uh, uh, on, on, on our terms. And so that we have to now monitor how that change affects India and Pakistan going forward. The line of control in Jammu and Kashmir has featured cross-border machine gun fire, artillery fire for decades. Do you think that acts as a bit of a steam valve for Pakistan and India and in possibly preventing a bigger clash, possibly preventing something as egregious as nuclear confrontation? Well, first of all, I mean, nuclear confrontation is a bridge uh, rather far. Now, we should all be aware of it. We should all be vigilant. But it's not something you should start worrying about on a daily basis. And I think that we've done too much of it over the last two decades, as I said, partly because it favored one side in getting attention. But that said, I think all of it is actually part of the same process. One side wants the Kashmir conflict that is more or less frozen. Look, the last time the United Nations approved a resolution on Kashmir about figuring out what to do with it was in 1959. Um, that was a long time ago. Uh, the world has changed. The number of countries in the world have changed. Pakistan's ability to leverage itself in getting a vote at the UN has changed. So very frankly, India and Pakistan need to sit down and accept certain changed realities since 1959. Instead of doing that, Pakistanis are very emotional about Kashmir. I fully sympathize and understand that because I am from Pakistan myself. But if you dissociate yourself from that emotion, then the question arises, okay, here's a dispute. You've had it for 71 years since your country was created. What's the practical way of solving it? And since there is no practical way of solving it, except maybe making some adjustments on what already exists on, on, on ground and saying, OK, this is how we live with it. Um, being the victim of the situation makes them feel that they get attention. So this line of control, shelling, etc., etc., uh, is not so much just a, a steam valve of two sides letting uh, lose their anger and passions, it is basically one side that feels the rest of the world does not listen to their concerns about a particular issue that they want uh, uh, to, be for, uh, to, to, to get attention. They're trying to get attention for it. Uh, if they find after a while that it doesn't get them the attention 
that they've been seeking and it results in a higher cost than they have been willing to pay, then perhaps there will be a change in the process through which they negotiate the future uh, with their neighbor. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about rising Indian-Pakistani tensions with retired Ambassador Hussein Haqqani, Hudson Institute Senior Fellow and Director for South and Central Asia. He served as Pakistan's ambassador to the U.S. from 2008 to 2011. Let's get to the terrorism equation in this relationship. The initial attack that sparked the brief fight was carried out by jaish e mohammed a Pakistan-based insurgent group fighting for Kashmir's independence from India. Now, that group has carried out several high-profile suicide attacks against Indian targets over the past 20 years since its formation and has reportedly helped the Taliban fight the U.S. and Afghanistan. Islamabad outlawed jaish e mohammed after two unsuccessful assassination attempts on former Pakistani President Pervez Musharraf in 2003. How is this group still operating out of Pakistan when it's been outlawed? Uh, well, um, unfortunately, my answer to that is not going to make many people in Pakistan very happy. Um, uh, as a former Pakistani diplomat, I have come under a lot of criticism for making this point, like just as you have done. Basically, Pakistan does not want to put groups that focus on Afghanistan and India, uh, terrorist groups, uh, completely out of action. Uh, it takes action whenever there is an in, uh, there is international pressure. Um, and then whenever the pressure is relieved, the groups are allowed to operate again. Part of the reason is because it's a, it's, it's in, a, in a, a David and Goliath situation, they see, the, see themselves as David. And Pakistan sees India as the Goliath, the bigger country. And so they see these terrorist groups as an equalizer. The rest of the world cannot accept that. And Pakistanis have not yet been able to convince themselves that maybe the terrorist uh, uh, groups operating out of its soil hurt Pakistan more than they are beneficial. Pakistan is a military-dominated country. The military has ruled the country for more than half its life. It continues to wield a lot of influence. It runs businesses. It runs political life. <clears throat> and the military thinks of it as a three-tier war with India. We have the nuclear umbrella but then we have equal or more or less cap uh, sufficient capability at the conventional level to ward off an immediate attack until the international community comes in and tells us to stop fighting. And then we have sub-conventional capability, which is these terrorist groups. And General Musharraf, who banned Jaish e Muhammad because they had plotted an attack on him, has himself gone on the record as saying, yes, we play a double game, but we play a double game for a reason. I, as a Pakistani, feel that Pakistan needs to stop that double game to be able to retain global credibility. But unfortunately, those who wield power in my country certainly don't have that view. Does Pakistan stand the chance of losing control over these groups? We saw another deadly attack across the border, this time in Iran in February, when another Sunni militant group, Jaish al-Adl, killed 27 of Iran's Revolutionary Guards. Now Iran is greatly upset at Pakistan. Pakistan seems to be making a lot of enemies in its neighborhood. Absolutely. Afghanistan, Iran and India all say the same thing. Um, look, it's, it's, it's a question of what is the calculus in Islamabad. Uh, most people are aware some of these terrorist groups have turned on Pakistan itself. There have been terrorist attacks. Pakistanis are victims of these terrorist attacks. And so therefore, uh, it is in Pakistan's interest to shut them down. Yet there is advantage to be had in the regional equation, or so some people think. Um, and um, 
the consequence of it all is that <clears throat> that uh, um, uh, that these groups continue to persist. They continue to survive. They continue to recruit. They continue to operate. Look, uh, for somebody to be a terrorist, uh, you know, you have to be relatively young and nimble to be able to move around. So this means that the guys who conducted attacks 20 years ago are not the guys who are physically fit enough to conduct the uh, uh, attacks that have taken place recently. Quite clearly, there is persistent and continuous recruitment and the ranks of the terrorist groups are being replenished. And uh, uh, despite many promises, Pakistan has simply not shut down the jihadi groups. Uh, Pakistan's answer to this is complicated. The way they, the official answer is, well, you know what? We are facing some kind of proxy war as well. Uh, Iran has its own influence in Pakistan through certain groups. Uh, Afghanistan supports certain groups. India does. So that's what we do. That's not how everybody else in the world sees it. Everybody else sees Pakistan as being a safe haven for various terrorist groups. And although Pakistan has been promising to shut them down, uh, it hasn't done it. Is Pakistan fully in control of these groups? No one can ever be fully in control of uh, such groups, because once you've given somebody the, uh, uh, the the equipment, the training, and then you've sent them forth, they can make adaptations in how they use that uh, uh, training, uh, uh, and, and especially when they are ideologically motivated. But then once they've done something you didn't want them to do, you can always yank the chain and tell the group that, you know, you can't operate here, you can't recruit young people. And that is just not happening in Pakistan, much to the chagrin of many people like myself in my country. Is there popular support in Pakistan for these groups? How, how does the average Pakistani look at these groups? Well, I think the average Pakistani is confused. Nobody likes them for their terrorist actions, but many people do think, uh, you know what, these guys do stand up for the people of Kashmir uh, who are fighting against the Indians, and what else are we supposed to do? A, a, a lot depends on, on, on the group itself. So, for example, Jaish Muhammad uh, has significant support in the area where it's operates out of and since the government doesn't put any restrictions on it or not the kind of restrictions the international community wants um, they are able to operate uh, with a substantial level of public acquiescence if not support and the state whose responsibility it is to shut down such groups. For example, in the United States, if there's a white supremacist uh, militia, uh, who checks it? It's the state, the government, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Somebody like that keeps an eye on them. Uh, that is not happening in Pakistan to the satisfaction of the rest of the international community. We've seen the U.S.-Pakistani relationship fray in recent years, but the relationship between Pakistan and China is growing. How big of a role does China play, do you believe, in keeping the peace between India and Pakistan? China has a billion people, so does India. China looks upon India as its long-term rival for Asian supremacy or supremacy in Asia. Pakistan is not China's rival, but rather an, a, a useful ally to keep India tied down. That said, there are limits to what China would be willing to do to support Pakistan. Uh, it equips Pakistan's military. Uh, it uh, has been bailing out Pakistan economically in recent years. Um, and in that sense, it enables Pakistan to continue to confront India. If there was no Chinese support and if American support to Pakistan had uh, been suspended as it has been uh, since uh, 2017, uh, then Pakistan would have no choice but to sue for peace with India. So in a way, China's real role here has been to 
bolster Pakistan's capability in standing up to India. Uh, uh, India would argue that that is a negative thing because it impairs India's ability to negotiate uh, with Pakistan, uh, bearing in mind the size differential between the two countries. It kind of pumps up Pakistan into being India's equal when it is really not an equal. The world is relieved that Pakistan and India have pulled back in this recent conflict, but obviously it raises questions going forward. Do you see this situation deteriorating or possibly getting Delhi and, pa- and Islamabad together and at least finding a relationship that could work and, and prevent this from growing into a bigger crisis? Well, I think that what we have now is a kind of uh, uh, a, a crisis that just drags on. Uh, India, because of the terrorism factor, refuses to pay attention to the problems of the people of Kashmir, uh, who are by ma- uh, majority Muslim area, uh, disputed with Pakistan. But even if the dispute with Pakistan was ignored, there are certain issues that India has to deal with in relation to the people of Kashmir. There are massive human rights violations. There's a large military and paramilitary presence, which the people do not like, and there is not enough development spending. Uh, And the people don't feel that they are uh, being given uh, due representation in the Indian body politic as they ought to. Pakistan takes advantage of it, introduces the terrorist dimension. And so this kind of goes on and on. It's been going on since 1989. In this present instance, that's 30 years. significant uh, levels of terror since 1999. Um, uh, And yet, uh, both sides have not given up. India has not been able to work out some deal with Kashmir's leaders so that at least that part of the equation is fully under their control. Pakistan has not backed away from supporting jihadi terrorists. Um, And the United States and China, the United States until recently, China even now, have not actually been able to restrain Pakistan uh, as India would like it to do. Uh, So uh, what we have is the makings of one of those law-drawn conflicts and crises that uh, uh, sort of simmer for a much longer period than we would all like it to simmer. The status quo is certainly not something to get comfortable with in this case, but certainly a lot better than the potential disaster that could result from a bigger conflict. Ambassador Haqqani, thank you very much for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. Pleasure being here. We've been talking with retired Ambassador Hussein Haqqani, Hudson Institute Senior Fellow and Director for South and Central Asia, and Pakistan's Ambassador to the U.S. from 2008 to 2011. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. That clock at four. Donchich, the step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.